you know, this idea of that there is something to grieve when you learn something about yourself or that you learn, I guess the grief comes in like, well, you don't get to fix this. Mm. Now, there are many times where I'd be like, I want, what do I, why would I want to fix this? Like, I'm great, you know. But then the, the parts that you don't like, eh, it's not going away. And no amount of uh, working hard and being the best little girl is ever going to get rid of it. This is Here After, and I'm your host, Megan Devine, author of the best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. This week on Here After, prolific podcast host Lauren Ober joins me to talk about autism and what it means to be seen, not hidden away. Lauren also learns that she's an activist, even if she hadn't planned to be, so be sure to listen for that surprise little gem that I get to deliver. All of that and more coming up right after this first break. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Before we get started, one quick note. While we cover a lot of brain-wiring territory in this episode, this show is not a substitute for skilled support or assessment with a licensed mental health provider. Hey, friends. So, 
I gotta say that I was a little bit nervous about this week's guest. She's got a zillion podcasts of her own out in the world, and she's a veteran of the media business. She even has an award-winning podcast about podcasts called The Big Listen. So, I don't know, I felt a little self-conscious is probably a better descriptor than nervous, but as Glennon Doyle says, we can do hard things, or in my case, slightly daunting things. For years, Lauren Ober wasn't all that jazzed about herself. She was always getting in trouble, she had these weird sensory issues, and her anxiety was off the charts. Plus, as she says, socially, she just kind of sucked. She said that. I didn't say that. At 42, though, life just seemed harder for Lauren than it should have been. And then, in the middle of the pandemic, she found out why all of that stuff felt so hard for her. She was autistic. Now, what's cool about this episode and Lauren in general is that Lauren's right in the middle of all of this stuff. It's a new diagnosis for her. So she is figuring out what it means to be on the autism spectrum and how to live life as a newly diagnosed autistic person. Most of our guests this season have been writing about their trauma or their histories or sharing their stories for a while now. And they sort of like, they have the story of it down. Not like they feel fine about it, but you know what I mean? Like they're, they're sort of talking about a chapter of their life that they're used to. That's not true for Lauren, though. Lauren's in the middle of the story, not looking back on a previous chapter. Her new podcast, The Loudest Girl in the World, is a real-time exploration of her new diagnosis and what it helps her understand about herself and her history. Now, the final episode of that podcast, The Loudest Girl in the World, comes out tomorrow, so you can binge the entire thing after you listen to our conversation here today. Let's get to that one with my guest, Lauren Ober. I am so glad that you're here. Now, I've been listening to your podcast for the last couple of days, so I have your voice in my head, and I'm so glad to like have your face along with your voice. Oh, that's so nice. Here with me. So... You've got a podcast out called The Loudest Girl in the World about your later in life diagnosis with autism. And I talked about the show a little bit in the intro here, and we definitely want people to go and listen to it because it's rad. But I want to open our time here together with something that I am personally curious about. So you have been a podcast host forever. You have a lot of amazing shows, but Loudest Girl in the World is different. So my question is, why make this show... And why make this show now? I feel like because I didn't know what else to do. I work a lot. I like my job. I'm grateful to have it. I'm grateful to have found a thing that really works for me and that, that you know, I like the process. Like, I enjoy the process of making audio. You know, for my entire life, I've never understood why anyone would write a memoir like, it seems awful. Like, what a terrible, like, what, why? It's awful. And that's basically what I ended up doing. And I don't know how I ended up doing that. I mean, I did an audio memoir, and I'm not sure, you know, I think the sort of the, the why of it was that it felt like the only way that I could really process the change in the diagnosis and the sort of recalibration of my thinking about myself was to to make it into a job is to make it work. So if I went about it in a 
sort of systematic way, a process oriented way, you know, I would I would sort of uncover more than if I just, you know, went to therapy and talked to my therapist and then and then maybe pretended like I hadn't gotten a diagnosis or not even really investigated what that meant for me, because I think that when you get a later in life diagnosis of autism or really any neurodivergent condition, you know, you've been bumping along your life okay up until that point. And so you could just continue carrying on in the same fashion that you had been. But for me, I think it made sense to try to make work out of it. Also, you know, when I was looking around for resources in the early days of my sort of coming, my my understanding of the diagnosis, I was like, there's nothing out here that is in my field that I do. Uh, Why? Why not? And nothing really spoke to me and there's lots of, I mean, there's lots of books and there's endless, you know, autism TikTok, autism Twitter, autism YouTube, like all of that exists. But all of those people are like 20 years younger than I am. And God yeah. love them for having a platform, but it's like not my platform. So I made a thing maybe for me, maybe as a, you know, healing process for me. I don't know. Uh, it's one of those like supposedly fun things I'll never do again kind of situation. Like <laughs> this is no, all you. of what podcasting is a supposedly fun thing. No, that, oof, probably don't want to do it again. I love making radio. I love making audio. I love I love the format, but doing personal work is really exhausting and terrible. I think for myself, other people probably find it really great, but I found it to be really agonizing. I mean. I have a very subtle presentation of autism. I don't need, you know, I'm not getting work accommodations. I work from home. There's no one to accommodate me but me. And I think that, you know, the hard thing is the is the going back in time, going back in history and sort of thinking about yourself in the past or thinking about difficulties that you've had and thinking about the ways that all of that could have been eased possibly mm-hmm. if you had more information about yourself and if the world were better equipped to handle difference. And so at least like with a word, with a diagnosis, at least, you know, I can keep my side of the street clean, right? The world isn't necessarily going to bend to me or other people with needs at the rate that people need change to happen. But, you know, at least I can be an advocate for myself because I have a word, but sort of understanding all of that and going through that whole you know, like, let me let me dive into the last 40 years of my life is like very unfun. You know? mm. Yeah, I think that there's a there's a lot of grief tied into that, right? Like, I know a lot of people in their 40s and their 50s who are just now getting diagnoses, right? Like with myself, with ADHD and with dyscalculia, like this makes everything make so much more sense. And a lot of people working through gender issues and identity and like there's so much of what you just described, so much grief in looking back, grief, my word, not your word, but looking back at my life could have been so much different if this had existed back then. Where does grief intersect with all of this for you? Or does it? It's funny because when I knew I was going to be talking to you, I just 
sort of the word grief was floating in my head, which I'm sure you love. Like when people think about you, they think about grief. Uh, But I was thinking sort of what does it mean? Because I think we have a very rigid or at least I have always historically had a very rigid understanding of what grief is. And grief is like something dies and then, you know, and then you get to grieve. Right. Mm -hmm. Or something is lost and then you get to grieve it. But it has to be a particular type of thing. Like I was sitting in therapy, like I was doing like Zoom therapy. And then all of a sudden I got an email or a text that came through and the dearest restaurant I've ever like it's like a place that I, I went to for more than a decade. There's a menu item named after me. I know everybody works there. I know the owners. They've invited me over for holidays. It's where I met my ex-partner who I dear, who is dear to me now. And I got a note that they're closing. And immediately, like in the middle of my therapy session, I just started crying. And I was like, I'm sorry. And my therapist was like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm sorry. This is so stupid. Like, this is so stupid. I just got this text about, and I, I mentioned all of this because it's like, there's a particular type of thing that you're allowed to grieve, you know, mm-hmm. and you're allowed to grieve your cat dying, but you're not allowed to grieve like the restaurant that is the most dear to you and a place where that was filled with joy and delight. You're like, that would be stupid. Like, why are you crying over that? That's dumb. So that's all to say that like my sort of working definition of grief is is sort of it's just narrow, I think. But I've had to think about this, you know, this idea of that there is something to grieve when you learn something about yourself or that you learn, I guess the grief comes in like, well, you don't get to fix this. Mm. Now, there are many times where I'd be like, I, what, what do I, why would I want to fix this? Like, I'm great, you know. But then the, the parts that you don't like, eh, it's not going away. And no amount of uh, working hard and being the best little girl is ever going to get rid of it. And so I think that can be hard and just sort of thinking about, well, what now, you know, and this sort of like, what, what are you left with once you learn this and, and how much then, how much work it takes to process that, to think about that. Like it is, you know, okay, now I know this about myself and now I know X, Y, and Z are not going away, nor are they my fault. They're not going away. So now how do I live with this or how do I advocate for myself or whatever? But it's, you know, it's a much more sort of abstract notion, I think, of grief than than we tend to think of. Yeah, we have such a narrow definition of what counts as a loss or what you get to have emotions about. Yeah. Right. Which is, I mean, that's one of the main reasons for this show is to talk about all the ways that grief shows up or presents or any of those things and that all of them are valid. And I'm sorry, your restaurant is closing. Like the loss of those secondary places, that's a huge touchstone. Well, right. And especially like for me, it's very important to feel like if you have felt othered in your life mm-hmm. by sort of people closest to you or just sort of society in general, having those places and feeling like you're a part of something are, are very important. And, you know, I was thinking about this also, like, you know, my my partner, Hannah, experienced this you know she she's in the show and 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 we we you know i i very much think that we made this together although she had no editorial input um so it wasn't really a together project but you know i think that there was i don't want to say a grieving period for her but i think that like a period where she had to then think about what it means for her 
to have a neurodivergent partner. And, you know, I mean, she loves me very much, but the things that might be frustrating or the problems that we keep running into, like, they're not going to magically go away. There are a lot of workarounds and, you know, couples therapy is great for this. But, like, I think that she experienced a period, you know, I I can't speak for her and I wouldn't necessarily frame it as grief, but it is definitely an adjustment. I would just leave it at adjustment. Yeah. I I mean, I think adjustment is a good, a good, almost, almost synonym here for grief, like something you wanted or something you were expecting or something that you relied on isn't that way and can't be that way. And that there is an emotional adjustment there and it's not good or bad. It's kind of neutral, right? Here is this reality. Here are the ways that we need to adapt and support and change and maneuver to make this the best, the best thing we can given the reality on at hand, right? Right. It's so easy, I think, to get into diagnoses bad, right? Like you you mentioned this just briefly, like that that othering that we do, like, oh, I'm so sorry you got diagnosed as being autistic. Like, what's the no, see, this is just a descriptor of how brains work differently. Like I think we we automatically consider neurodivergence as bad news. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I, look, it, it's not like it. I mean, I didn't become a different person. It's like now I have a word and the word is very helpful. But if I lived in an accommodating world, I wouldn't need a word. And yeah. you wouldn't need a word that was ADHD. And like, I mean, I, I've talked about this with my friend Catherine May, who wrote the book Wintering. And she wrote a book called The Electricity of Every Living Thing, which is about her sort of understanding of her own neurodivergence and autism. And and that, like, you need a shorthand, which is, like, the word, because people cannot understand difference if it is not sort of pathologized, I think. That, like, you can't just understand that people come in a million different shapes and sizes and their brains work differently and different people need different things, you know, so you need like, oh, well, this kid is like X, so they need Y. And, or this kid has, you know, X and they need Y. And, you know, part of that is practical. I mean, in a school, like schools as they are now are not equipped to deal with every single kid's unique needs public schools i would say uh, are not equipped to deal with every unique child and all of their unique learning styles and that is a real shame because a lot of kids get left behind you know so we give a word and we're like okay well if you have this word then you need x things and it's like okay yes and also there's a lot of other stuff that goes that goes with that but if we were all working from a place of expansion uh, or, you know, expansive thought around all of this, like it would be much easier. We wouldn't necessarily need, you know, a lot of labels because people would just like have a much easier time moving through the world being somewhat atypical. Yeah. Well, the whole typical atypical thing irks me linguistically anyway but like a lot of a lot of diagnostic history, a lot of like labels, all of those things, they're at their root. They're about identifying a problem so that we can cure it or fix it. Sure. There's a normal, typical way. And then there's a divergent 
way, and we clearly do this in grief, right? Like there are certain things that you get to grieve and you have to do it in this specific way and emote in this specific way and then be done by this timetable. And if you don't, then you are atypical and you're clearly doing it wrong. Right. People are so good at coping, especially folks who are in their 40s and 50s and up. Like we have lived through eras where none of our relational or educational challenges were on anybody's radar. And so we learned to adapt and develop coping mechanisms. And sometimes that's called masking, right? Masking what's actually happening so that you can fit in and adapt. So if we really think about how many people have had to learn to adapt to a world that doesn't naturally suit them, how can we say anything is typical? So what does neurotypical even mean in a world that doesn't have any curiosity about variation at all? This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Hereafter, and I'm Megan Devine. We've been talking to podcast host Lauren Ober. Let's get back to it. So what does neurotypical even mean in a world that doesn't have any curiosity about variation at all? Right, right. When you get into the semantics of things, like for me, it feels like a dangerous territory because because people do feel very attached to an identity, like a neurodivergent identity, to an autistic identity, to a, you know, non-binary identity. Like people are attached to their identities for lots of reasons. For me, again, I think it's it's less like thinking about, well, there's there's one pervasive way that people are thinking about things, and then there's this way that is sort of much more rare. And that's what I'm, it's more just a shorthand for me. I, you know, look, like, like I'm a straight up weirdo in a lot of ways. And I have a lot of behavior that is not typical or, you know, that would not be seen as normal. That's fine. I don't care. I don't necessarily want to be, 
you know, the standard bearer of the average. Uh, and I'm fine with that. I think that what I would like, like, you can say I'm weird. And also you can still be like, I love her. Like, she's cool. It's not in spite of, it's because of her brain works differently than Perhaps we have been taught that brains work. You know, I mean, look, the number of people who, after doing the show, have been like, you know, well, I'm a little autistic. And I'm like, well, not quite. But yeah, we all have we all have traits that make us feel weird. And that's great. And I think that that allows people to be more open and empathetic because they can be like, oh, well, I have a lot of food sensitivities, too. Am I autistic? It's like, well, no. I mean, it's a spectrum and you're a little bit. Th- and so hopefully it just like, you know, it's like, uh, well, everyone's a little bit gay. I'm like, we'll prove it. You know, like go like you dude, make out with right. that dude. Like, go do it now. Um, <laughs> but but is it a continuum? And can you say like, sure, I'm you know, I am female. I do not want to have an emotional or sexual relationship with that woman, but I find her deeply attractive. Yes. Does that mean you're gay? No. But like, does it mean you can empathize with with people who are in a sexual minority? Yes. Mm. You know, look, however you want to identify, I'm cool with I'm gay. I'm lesbian. I'm queer. I'm a dyke. Like, whatever. It's it's all the same to me. I'm just well, not goes, straight. Just don't call me straight. Just don't. Do not call me straight. Do not. But this, like, this goes back to what we were just talking about: is that the the categories, categories themselves are neutral, right? And the way that those categories get used is sometimes to further shame and otherize people, and sometimes those categories are used as a way to find your people, right? Mm-hmm. To find the places like that, that place that you feel like you belong and you're seen and you're validated, which being seen and validated is such a powerful act. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I don't know what I expected in making this show. I think that's one thing if you have an autistic brain is like you're not doing a whole lot of future thinking. Mm. You're you're doing a lot of present work, but you're not necessarily thinking about like well, how does this impact you down the road? And how are you going to think about it? And how are you going to feel? And it's like, no, I'm really enjoying this work right now. Like, I'm really enjoying, like, writing. And I'm really enjoying talking to all the people. And I'm really enjoying the construction of it. And then you're like, oh, wait, like, I'm going to end up getting a lot of email from people. And I'm going to end up getting a lot of DMs from people. And I'm going to end up getting a lot of, you know, just people being like, you know, you also have ADHD or somebody being like, and I'm like, okay, thanks. Like, Armchair diagnoses. I'm thanks. like, thanks. Thanks, Dr. Internet. <laughs> or or like uh, people being like, you don't have to just be your diagnosis. And I'm like, I'm not. <sighs> I'm good. Then, the, the you know, that's just a couple of people. But then, like, I have had so many people feel exactly the way that I did, which is that like, oh yeah, sure, you found you found your people and that like you got married, you had kids, you have a job that you love, you know, but you hadn't never seen your experience reflected back at you, this very particular experience. And so, you know, am I gonna be best friends with those folks? No. But they know then that they are not, you know, like one of one. So there is that solidarity there, whether or not we're in a, you know, in our, in a tribe of people 
or or whether it's just like some person who made a show that you connect with and you're like, ah, okay, like maybe now I'm one of two, you know, (laughs) or that like, you know, I I don't know. I, I find that very gratifying because, you know, for some people like, okay, you come out as X or you decide that you're X or whatever. And then you're like, I just want to be around all those people. And it's like, well, I have a pretty full life. And, you know, although I do have an episode called Will You Be My Autistic Friend, where I'm like, I probably should make some autistic friends if I'm mm. going <laughs> to be this neurotype. <laughs> but yeah, I probably lost the thread on your original comment or question. But so... <laughs> Excuse you my didn't. spinning out. But. You didn't actually. You stuck right to it, which is more than I can often do. But but this is this is actually this leads me to a place that I wanted to go in the beginning, but we we took off in another direction. So this this idea of being seen versus not seen, right? Hmm. Othered versus accepted. And there's a there's an experience that you had as a kid that you talk about early on in the podcast as a talkative kid in a school system that really does not like talkative children. You tell a story in the podcast about being put in a box on Halloween. Yeah. Basically cut off from seeing or being seen during a Halloween school party. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, sure. Just a little background. I mean, it was constantly being punished in school for talking too much. And my report card always said, you know, Lauren has a failure to maintain self-control, which like, wouldn't that be on any elementary schools, uh, elementary schoolers? report card. But anyway, you know, I mean, my I was often sent out of the classroom to sit in the hall by myself on the floor or one time, not one time, a couple of times my desk was put out in the hall. I don't know how you learn from a hallway, but that's where my desk was or it was next to the teacher or it was at the back of the classroom. So I was fairly known, you know, as as a kid who was in trouble. But I never thought of myself as a bad kid, and my parents didn't think of my, me as a bad kid. It was just like a kid who talked too much, and it was up to the teachers to deal with it. And so one day in, like, my sixth grade year, and my teacher had basically taken what amounted to, like, a refrigerator box and cut one side off of it and cut the top off of it and sort of made this partition or, or like, a screen like a cardboard screen around my desk and put my desk at the back of the classroom so that I can't couldn't see any of my classmates and they couldn't see me. I couldn't see the board or anything like that. And I remember this, it sort of burned into my brain because one of the days that that I was in this box was Halloween when we had our Halloween party and I had dressed up as Pippi Longstocking and and you can't see, but I have ginger hair. And when I was younger, it was very, very bright red. My mom had braided copper wire into it. And I really had just the, sort of the most best costume. And, you know, at a time, like on a day, a day of all days, when you're supposed to be seen, you're like back in the back of the classroom, like with this box around you. I mean, the teacher may have taken it down for like the Halloween party. But for the most part, like I was just hidden. And it's humiliating. It's humiliating because there's deep shame in your parents experiencing your punishment. Or, you know, now I'm taking on their emotions and I don't know what they felt at the time. But for me, I remember it sort of like like I said, burned into my brain as this, you know, this shame, this deep shame. And, you know, I don't think that I, in, in my sort of high school or college years, I ever gave it any thought. And then, you know, when you become an adult, a responsible adult and go to therapy, 
you know, you're trying to understand why you feel like garbage about yourself for your entire life. And there has to be a root somewhere, you know. <laughs> so this image kept popping up for me. And, and I, I thought, wow, like actually, actually sort of doing that type of separation is really damaging to a child. And when I tell teacher friends now, they're like, what? Like, Horrified. excuse me, yeah. what? The Like, what happened to you? And I also understand that, like, I have never been a teacher, like, in a classroom where I had to manage, you know, a bunch of you know, screaming like 10 year olds. I imagine it's very difficult. And if you have one child who's disruptive, like that throws your whole system off. So I don't want to like punch the teacher in the face, but I'm also like, you know, get yeah. like, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad uh, classroom management has uh, come some way since the 80s. Yes. Some, some ways in some classrooms. Of course. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a reality in there that you just mentioned that the U.S. educational, public educational system is a management issue. And that if there is somebody who is doing something that is difficult to manage in a group, you have to address it. Right. So like what I hope has changed is that manage, addressing those things that make hordes of 10 year olds challenging to manage has has sort of evolved past that into more support services and support for educators and all of these things but like when I heard that story on your podcast this is I'm exposing some nerdery here but it may it made me think about shunning as a social control practice and whenever I think about shunning I think about an ep- episode of Star Trek where I believe Worf was shunned by his Klingon brethren wow right? Wow, you're like Full so far card. out of my realm. That's all right. I can bring I it back to this. I can bring I'm it back pre- to no, this. No, I'm waiting. World. I'm I'm very excited for yeah. for this to get wheeled back in. Yeah. Woo! I can do it. I can wheel most things back in. That's one of my special things. But this is also a practice in the Amish community, although they don't. Sure. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it's rare that they use it now. The Jehovah's Witnesses do this, sure. but this public relational shunning thing, like the your experience of being put in a box mm-hmm. where you can't see anyone and nobody is allowed to see you. First of all, what kind of message does that send to the observer kids in that room? Like anybody who is different, we must make them disappear. Yeah. Don't talk to them. Don't look at them. They're a terrible person. So yeah. we're actually, you know, the, the punishment isn't just on the child in the box. The punishment is also for the rest of the community there and how we have warped their little minds to experience difference as a thing to be ashamed of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I grew up Catholic, like, you know, you don't have to oh, explain excommunication. Excommunic- yeah. I mean, I was like excommunicated from the, the students. Um, I didn't go to, I went to a public school. I did not go to a Catholic school, but sort of, yeah. I mean, that concept of like, I mean, that's how you keep the majority being the majority like that's how you keep the control that's how you show everyone this is how we do it like we need we need a critical mass of people to be doing the right thing at all times otherwise the system falls apart and it's like well what if you just gave people the tools to do the things that were good for them you know look i mean there are probably some very creative ways i'm not an educator so i don't know you know but there are probably some very creative ways where you get the chattiest kid in class to get all their chatting out at a particular time and then bargain make deals whatever okay you get your time to do this here and when we are in this situation you do x and maybe you can't do x 
for an hour, but maybe you can do it for half an hour without talking. So what are the ways? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm two minds of this because one, I'm like, what was wrong with that teacher? And then mm. also I'm like, there just weren't a lot of resources and there aren't a lot of resources for teachers. And and at the time, there were no resources really for parents. And there are more resources for parents now. So I'm not like, I'm not like, oh, you know, geez, like my parents really should have taken me to get help because right. what help, what help was, was there. there. Yeah. Right. Um, especially when, you know, they, you know, they know so little about neurodivergence in women and girls and people who are not men are boys. So what were you, what, you know, you can be upset that it happened, but also know that there weren't a whole lot of options. Yeah. There were cultures and systems and cluelessnesses in place and there still are, right? Like sure. our, our goal here is to become more and more aware and more adaptive and more inclusive and to, to start adopting practices that help people who don't fit into those must be managed situations cope with a situation that is discordant to the way that they work mm -hmm. right like that that is a thing right like i understand that the way that you interact with the world is to talk 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 and we have a place for that this right here is not the place for that so how can you help yourself keep your words to yourself at this time that yeah. is a very different approach than like get into this box. Totally, totally. Yeah. And, you know, approaching people with sort of grace and kindness and accommodation a lot of times takes so much overriding of the things that you've learned and the thing, the ways that you have been parented or taught or whatever, or, it, you know, it doesn't take into account your own trauma or the own th your own things that you're bringing into it. If you have all the tools and you still don't do the right things, like, get out of here, you know? Yeah. But if you don't have the tools... How can anybody be expected to, like, be doing the right thing? And, I mean, I think, like, thank God for therapy and thank God that I've had the resources to be able to go to therapy and to have some really great therapists. I mean, not in an insubstantial cost, but, like, if I'm working on the tools and I still fall to pieces, well, then that's that's on me. Yeah, it's an interesting collaborative way of looking at being human here. I want to go back to just one thing and then go into my into our discussion about like the collaborative act of being human. But like <laughs> you mentioned it too when we were talking about your experience as a child. How do you not come out of an experience like that thinking that this is your fault? Right? You mentioned that earlier that, you know, so much of your adult life was like internalized shame and I'm bad and why aren't things easier for me and you know basically where am I failing and I feel like that's a narrative that so many of us have like an, an interior monologue of you're the one who's screwy so you know buck up and try harder and that's certainly a message that we give people across okay spectrum is maybe the wrong word to use here but like because I mean the spectrum of humanity Yep. Right. Why why are you failing the cultural storyline of happy, resilient, communicative, in a happy relationship? Like we have this idea that anytime we're failing that cultural ideal, it's because of our own personal failings. And that really gets cemented in the ways that we talk about any kind of human difference or human difficulty. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm I'm reading um right now, um, my buddy Alice Wong, who's an amazing disability justice warrior, 
has this fantastic new memoir out called uh, The Year of the Tiger. And in it, you know, this is sort of a, an idea that she talks a lot about. It's like, first of all, it's sort of deeply capitalist and ableist to be like, this is the one way of doing things. And if you're not doing it this way, then you're failing and you're not productive and you're not a good little citizen, you know, making widgets for your nation, you know. And I think that, you know, I in reading her book, it's very inspiring because it's like, no, I get to be how I want to be in the world. And there should be ways that I can do that, that are humane and that that accommodate for me and for other people and that like you know I don't have to think of myself as bad or lesser than because I'm not doing the exact thing that everybody else is doing and also I have my own way of doing things and there are systems in place that allow me to do that and and take into account you know the things that I need I mean it's weird this sort of one-size-fits-all American approach especially given how the breadth and depth of of the population in in this country it's like why do we think that there's like one way to work one way to go to school you know one way to show up in the world as a friend as a partner as a this as a that it's like it's so limiting but so much of it i don't know if it's like fear or the lack of creativity or curiosity that like puts us all in like everybody has to be on the same track and if you're not you're this, you know, you're bad. Like it, it's, but it's so, I don't know. It's just like a really tiny way to live, I think. But then that's another thing to like feel bad about. I'm like, why do I feel shame about feeling shame? You know, it's like, oh boy, the endless, just the endless thought cycle. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. But this, I mean, this is a really important point here that we do sort of pop psychology, the APA, like we have this there is one correct way and the messaging that so many of us got and get is if you are not that one correct accepted way then you are the problem yeah right and we see this we see this anytime somebody is like upset about something or having feelings about something it's like well no you know look on the bright side and, and cheer yourself up or or even like in the disability community in lots of different ways it's like have you tried broccoli right or like <laughs> if you just use these coping skills that i learned about on google then you could be normal like me like this like undercurrent of Yes, we celebrate diversity, but if you would just try X, Y, and Z, you could be a lot more like the masses, whoever the masses are. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, in Alice's book, you know, she 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 cites some research about, you know, surveying people with physical disabilities, like, do you want to be different? And a lot of people are like, no, I'm good. I'm not the problem. The society is the problem, and culture is the problem, and then accessibility is the problem. It's not... The person who has a different need than you is the problem. But it's also a thinking that, like, people want to be able to set themselves apart from people who are not like them and being able to, you know, look at anyone with a disability and be like, oh, their lives are so hard. Like, oh, they must be so struggling so much or they must, like, hate themselves or, ugh, thank God I'm not like that, you know. And it's like, what do you know of those people? You don't know anything about anyone. Like, you know about yourself. 
You know about your own community. Like, everyone's got a sack of rocks, and you can only see into yours. Like, and uh, look, I mean, I'm talking as if, like, I'm some saint here. I am not. Like, I'm a deeply judgmental asshole a lot of the time. And and you hear it, but also it's it's been, it's learned behavior in a lot of ways. You know, it's a lot of learned behavior. It's a lot of how you've been treated, and you turn it on other people. It's, like, such basic, you know human psychology, it's almost embarrassing to mention. We're doing the best that we can, you know? So at least I recognize yeah. <laughs> when I'm that, a And that is the thing, right? Like, that is the thing. It's not about not being judgmental. Like, our brains are meant to assess, which is another word for judge, right? It's, are you aware of how you're using your instinctual judgment? Are you catching those things that, that being a human in this culture has taught you? right? That this is the wrong way to be or that this is something to be ashamed of. Like, can you interrupt that sort of subconscious process and say, oh, wait a second, I'm making an assessment or a judgment here. Um, Is that really warranted? Is that really accurate? Can I be curious about the person in front of me or curious about my own experience instead of making a judgment about it based on soaking up this culture that does not like any nuance? Yeah. I mean, there are certain things that like I will be immovable on in my judgment. Like Mm -hmm. you cannot wear white socks, straight men with a suit. Like you can't. You can't. So diving into this stuff and talking about how we as a culture, as a society handle difference, looking at your own history of, you know, being an othered person and then learning things that make you think about that in different ways or understand it in different ways like that's it's a lot of stuff to absorb any sort of self-reflection self-analysis like that's a lot to absorb and then you start reading like you know other writing by folks with disabilities and like just start to see how okay this is totally me talking here but like you start to see how mean the world is or how mean the world can feel so two questions One, has the world felt mean to you doing this work? (laughs) Because sometimes the world feels very mean to me, not mean to me personally, but the world is mean. And two, regardless of your answer to question one, what does hope look like for you if hope exists at all? So question one. Okay, let me let me do because I can only handle one question at a time. Is the world mean? You know, I think that like, like mean implies intent. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's an intention to be cruel. And I think there are a lot of ways in which individual people exist in a state of cruelty. But I don't know that it comes from nothing. You know, is the world a mean place? Is the state a mean place? Like, I think in some ways, sure. Uh, I mean, I looked at so many videos of autistic people and other people with neurodevelopmental differences who are institutionalized, like I in the 50s. And that's like as like mean and brutal as it gets. It's really hard because there are a lot of people who probably worked in those facilities and thought that they were doing the best that they could with folks. And then you look at the ways in which people were experimented on against their will or against their knowledge or all that stuff. And you're like, that seems like cruel and devious and evil, you know? So I I don't know. I mean, it's hard, like, since I've done this project in my own life, like, I've been met with mostly very warm 
feelings from my friends or people who I've, you know, I knew in a former life or, you know, I used to work with a million years ago or something who have sort of come out of the woodwork and been very kind and very understanding and very interested and curious. I don't want to dwell a lot in sort of how things were or how things I mean, even though, like, I'm literally doing a podcast that starts with, like, a, you know, sixth grade. I'm, like, still holding on. I guess it's my desire to not hold on to those things in my personal life. And I can only really speak to my own life. I can't speak to how people sort of feel systemically about certain things, you know. But for me, I'm like, I just want to find a way to be, like, an okay person now, you know. And how can I be okay with the people who are around me? Like, how can I be okay with my partner and my friends and my family? Like, how can I just show up in a way that makes me feel good about me? Because I can't control, you know, I can't control what else is going on, you know? And so, like, I can't control the world beyond, you know, my little house. So for me, it's important to, like, have tools where I can both, you know, that can that can help me manage, but that can also help me advocate for the things that I need. Like if I need to leave a party because I can't handle the noise or the stress or whatever, I've both put it out there, you know, to people like, this is how I am. Like if I'm going to Irish goodbye you, I'm going to Irish goodbye you. And like, it's not you, it's me. And that's fine. I can own that. But also you can be empathetic. You know, my partner and I went to a wedding recently and like, we literally like said to the people like, we're probably going to Irish goodbye you. And they're like, no. And we're like, mm, yeah, yeah. Like, we'll pretend like we're going to come. Well, like, I can say I'm going to say bye to you, but I'm not. I'm just going to leave. Level up those expectations. Yep. Right, right. And I think like managing expectations and letting people know, you know, but it's a two-way street, I think, you know. And so I hope that that's what this podcast does to people who are not autistic or neurodivergent listen to it as like they're like oh right like just one more way of being in the world mm. and I can respect that if somebody says that they need something different or they need something less loud or they need something you know with without any eggplant in it like <laughs> that's me that's I'm sorry that's just no eggplant no eggplant for me no eggplant for you noted you you kind of did answer both questions in a way. I forgot there was a second question about hope. Yeah. And I'm going to let you answer it even more if you want to. Also, where I heard you go with what you just said was like, I can control my sphere of things. And what I want in my sphere of things is for people to have some empathy and some interest and some curiosity in learning who I am and what I need for myself. Yeah. And that we can sort of co- co-build these relationship systems, these ecosystems where we're curious about differences and we respect the needs of others and ourselves. Yeah. I mean, look, when I first got the diagnosis and I was like really just steeping in it, I was like, I need a wide berth. Like I need a very wide berth. Like everyone around me just needs to like accept everything. And like, you just need to understand because now I understand this about myself. And like, if I show up late to your dinner party, it's not because I don't like you. It's just like, I can't deal with time management. I mean, my partner and I ended up having a lot of conflict around that time because I was just like, ah, like I can't be accountable for anything. Like I just need to be me, you know? And 
that's not how a partnership works. But also, I think it was just a real desire to like, oh, now that I know this thing about myself, I need everybody else to like get with the program. And it's like, okay, well, people aren't going to just get with the program. You know, as much as I like, I have a real like extreme anxiety slash phobia of sitting in a window seat in an airplane. And it's a relatively new anxiety that I learned one time where I was sat in the window seat and had a panic attack such that I told the flight attendant that I needed to be taken off a plane unless I got my seat changed. Like I was fully in panic mode. And luckily, some very nice gentleman next to me was like, it's okay. Like, I'll just switch with you. It's no big deal. And so as much as I would like to be able to just say, if my ticket says you're in the window, I could just say to the flight attendant, hey, I'm autistic. Uh, I can't really manage uh, window seats. And they'd be like, super, like, we'll switch you at the end and have it be like a very frictionless interaction. That would be my dream. But it isn't my dream. I mean, it's not a reality. I feel like you did answer the question about hope, even if the word hope is a strange package. And I honestly, this is why hope is a theme for this season, because I think that the word hope is a strange package. And, uh, you know, the the things that you want for yourself, the things that you describe that you want for yourself and for the people you care about sounds very hopeful, right? Like something to move into. Yeah, I feel very much like I'm a closet optimist, like don't tell anyone, but I am. And so, you know, I I really do have that that, you know, sort of ridiculous maxim of, uh, you know, as I live, I hope kind of in, in my brain. To me, what that is, is resilience and it's grit and it's like clawing towards something better. And look, I'm not, I'm never going to be an activist. Like, I'm not going to be an activist like my friend Alice Wong. And I'm not going to be an activist like so many, like, amazing people who, you know, blaze trails and, 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 and made our world a better place. But, like, I feel like as showing up as a person who can articulate a particular way of being and hopefully people will see that like these words that we have aren't that scary or the things that we think about ability or disability they aren't necessarily true you know and I always live in hope that like I you know I personally like have a less stressful a life with less friction uh Mm. you know and that things are just easier and a lot of that work is me and a lot of it is sort of is the world you know what I can do is like I can manage my little house I can manage my little friendships I can manage my little neighborhood interactions like I can manage how I show up in the world I I want to treat people in as sort of Pollyanna-ish as it sounds like how I would like to you know be treated and model that behavior to the extent that I can in my you know, my personal professional relationships, but you know, it's a process. That's why we, that's why we pay therapists. <laughs> this is, yes. And the therapist, thank you. But this, this is also like, this is actually a good closing point here because we, we were sort of came back around to the beginning where we were talking about what it means to be seen and what it means to be othered. Right. So mm. paying attention to the things that are under your control looking at who you are and how you are in the world and navigating that with the sort of spheres of social connection that are around you, your most intimate people in your community and your whatever we call them, the secondary contacts, like making that world as supportive and frictionless and kind as you possibly can and letting that be seen, right? I mean, we know we know what modeling 
is for human the human brain like we we watch and we learn things and we learn how to be human by watching other humans so in that way i hate to break it to you but you are an activist Oh, you're, you're, I'm sorry. You what? are. You what? are. But it doesn't mean you have to do anything else. <laughs> that it's not a mantle of responsibility that you then need to pick up. But the, the, the point here is that telling the story makes something visible that isn't always visible. And when we make something visible, it allows other people to be curious about it and to try yeah. it on for themselves. And that, to me, is a really hopeful thing. Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I think, you know, and it, we did start by talking about how, why, you know, to make this project. And I think one thing I did think of is like, I have access. I have a platform. I've done this before. I know the right people. And like, that is a huge barrier for for people getting their own sort of stories out. And it's like, in some way, it's like the very least I could do. It's the thing that I knew how to do, right? Like, I don't know how to be an activist, who, like a rabble rouser, but I do yeah. know how to tell stories and I do know how to create space for, you know, difference, I think. And I could do that for my own story. And hopefully some people are like, yeah, right on. Like, that's that's my experience, too. Cool. And then they like forget about it and move on to another podcast because that's what we do. So you know. <laughs> That is what we do. It has been so good to talk to you. So I'm going to link to everything that you mentioned, including Alice's book in the show notes, but let people know where to find your show and where to find you and whatever else you want them to know. Yeah, our show is The Loudest Girl in the World. It is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. It is a production of Pushkin Industries and iHeartMedia. I am on all social platforms at Ober and Out. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think of the show or whatever dumb things I said here because they're funny. <laughs> We'll tag you when we put up our, our media thing so that, you know, if people have comments, they can get you. Oh, I thought that you were right going to say we, we're going to tag you when you say something dumb. And oh, then people can have no. just like a really easy pipeline to get to you about all Ooh, the dumb things. That would be said. completely out of character meanness for me. All right. <laughs> Stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back for your questions to carry with you after this break. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, before we get to your questions to carry with you this week, I want to tell you about a new clinical training starting this December. If you have ever felt like a deer in the headlights when a client or a patient starts talking about grief or some other intense, immovable experience, well, okay, one, you are definitely not alone in feeling like you don't know how to handle it. And two, this intensive training will give you the skills you need to support people when their life goes horribly wrong, whether that's in big ways or in smaller ones. All of the information about this training with me is at megandevine.co. Registration is open right now. And for real, this is not a marketing ploy, but class size is really limited. It's open to only 48 people. And I know that more than half of those spots are already gone. So if you want in, check it out now, megandevine.co. All right, now to your questions to carry with you until we meet again. This season has a running theme, and it is more obvious in some episodes than others. This season is all about hope, finding it, losing it, redefining it, and fighting for it. And you know what I really loved in this episode? Lauren couldn't really get into the concept of hope. It wasn't really a thing that she understood or that she felt like was sort of available to her. What she did say is she is, quote, clawing towards something better clawing towards something better. I think that's often the best thing available to us, right? With everything going on, with all of the friction points and the hardships and the small, beautiful things going away, like the favorite restaurant that Laurel mentioned, clawing towards something better for yourself and the people in your life, I think that's the most radical hope option we have, to want something better and to fight for it. What stuck with you from this episode today? What parts made you think about your own childhood, the places of friction in your life, or your own brain wiring in new or different ways? Everybody's going to take something different from today's show, but I do hope you found something to hold on to. Hope really is a crowdsourced thing. Talking about all of this stuff helps. So I hope this conversation encourages you to have your own conversations about difficult things in your own life. If it does, I want to hear about it. <laughs> Check out Refuging Grief on Instagram or here after pod on TikTok to see video clips from this show and leave your thoughts in the comments on those posts. That's a good way to be in touch with me. Also, be sure to tag me in your conversation starting posts on your own social accounts. Use the hashtag here after pod on all the platforms. That's how I can find you. The whole team loves to see where this show takes you. If you want to tell us how today's show felt for you, or you have a request or a question for upcoming explorations of difficult things, give us a call at 323-643-3768 and leave a voicemail. If you missed it, you can find the number in the show notes or visit megandevine.co. If you'd rather send an email, you can do that too, right on the website, megandevine.co. We want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. This show this world needs your voice. Together we can make things better, 
even when they can't be made right. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review so other people take a chance on the show and listen, and tell your friends. Tell everybody. It's going to take all of us to make this a much more beautiful and communicative world. (laughs) Want more hereafter? Grief education doesn't just belong to end-of-life issues. As my dad says, daily life is full of everyday grief that we don't call grief. Learning how to talk about all that without cliches or platitudes or dismissive statements is an important skill for everyone, especially if you're in any of the helping professions. If you are in the helping professions, you can join me for a six-month training intensive to learn ways to be truly helpful to your clients and your patients and your colleagues. There are only a handful of spots left, so check out megandevine.co for details. Hereafter with Megan Devine is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown. Co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio. Logistical and social media support from Micah. Edited by Houston Tilly. And music provided by Wavecrush. Background noise today provided by children playing laser tag outside my window. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.